everybody, and welcome again to Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. And with me today, I have the wonderful David Avalone. Hey, David. Hey. How how are you? How are you this Sunday? <laughs> I am I am fine. Thank you very much. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm doing I'm doing spectacular, spectacular. Now that I have you on the, the horn, it's it's going to be a good day. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, why don't you, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, man? Um, I'm, uh, the, the reason I stumbled across this podcast is that I, I'm, uh, writing a comic book called Twilight Zone, The Shadow. Hey-o. Actually, it's really The Twilight Zone, The Shadow. That's so many thes. It tires <laughs> me out just to say it. Um, which is for Dynamite Comics. They asked me to, I think I got the first email saying, hey, would you be interested in doing this about this time last year? Um, and I'm relatively new to comic books. I started uh, writing them about two years ago. Um, prior to that, and currently, I'm uh, an independent filmmaker. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I I, uh, I checked out some of your IMDb and and your site, of course. Uh, sure. Uh, David Avalone Freelance, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, yeah. So, and and uh, I I saw some some cool stuff on there. Uh, some VR troopers way back in the day. Oh yeah, a million years ago, I was a I was actually a grip, a lighting department dude on the Power Rangers on the first season of the Power Rangers, huh. um, and that was the job where I said, you know, I got to stop doing this and uh, try and transition my career into doing the work I want to do. Right, and so that was my last job as a grip, and I went to the producers of that show, uh, who I'd become friendly with on the set. And said, you know, I know you're not going to believe this, but I'd like to write for you guys. And uh, they were starting a new show called VR Troopers, and they had me pitch some story ideas, and that was my first TV writing job. That's that, that's that. Yeah, that was that was so awesome. I was so awesome. Yeah, I, I like watched like a couple show, a couple of those episodes way back when, way back in the day. Uh, Though we were we were canceled, ironically enough, for being too. Uh, it was the second highest rated, quote unquote, children's show on television at the time. Yeah, they canceled it because our mission had been make something a little smarter than the Power Rangers for slightly older kids, and we overshot our target and we're hitting a huge audience that was no longer young enough to buy toys. Oh. That's so they were like, the show's doing great. You're not selling any action figures. You're you're all fired. That was <laughs> so, that was your mistake, man. That was our mistake. We needed to make it just a little tiny bit, couple of years younger on the audience, so that we could sell action figures. And and, and ever since then, you've been writing for a Strawberry Shortcake. Yeah, so. <laughs> if only. Uh, well, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. First of all, uh, I I have read the first two issues of uh twilight the twilight zone the shadow uh, mm-hmm. i i know that the third one is out in as when this airs uh the fourth one will be out which will be yeah i think that's july 27th correct is and number four it's the stands absolutely uh okay. we'll go ahead and get into that uh after a little bit later sure okay oh or unless you want to talk about it now I, either way well, let's, let's get into the chaser let's okay. talk about our today's our today's uh episode today's subject absolutely so you, let, let's get into it it is episode one the chaser as you mentioned uh, originally aired may 13th 1960 uh, stars george grizzard as roger shackleforth and john mcintyre as professor damon not demon yeah uh and patricia, patricia berry as leela mm-hmm. uh, directed by douglas hayes who also directed elegy and teleplay by R- robert presnell 
uh, based on a short story, The Chaser, uh, though, uh, which is by John Collier, but Presnell actually adapted it for um, mm-hmm. uh, a television show. Right. Uh, but yeah, so so that that's that's that. Let's get right into the episode. All right, we're watching Shackleforth. Right. He is. He's at the telephone. He's got a line of people behind him, and they're all waiting impatiently for him to get off, get out of the, the phone booth. Uh, this this old dude shows up and he's like, "Hey, why is there a long line?" He pays his way to the front, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the the funniest part about that was the old lady at the the front of the line, who's like, "Wait, you're gonna give me a dollar?" Right, who shakes him down for more money, which is funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's a, it's a classic sort of rods. I mean, even though Serling didn't write it, it's a nice imitation of his. You know, uh, what's the word? You know, they're all kind of beautiful nineteen early nineteen sixty cliches of New York humanity. You've got a, you know, you've got a kind of blonde bombshell. You've got the impatient businessman. You've got the yeah. shrewd old lady. You know, they're all they're all sort of they're all sort of cliches. And everyone in this episode is kind of a a a, a, a nice cliche for want of a better word. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, uh, you have Shackleforth who. He's twenty. He looks. He's a very, very old-looking twenty. Is do they do they come out and say he's? T- I think Sterling says early twenties or youngish twenties or something. Because yeah. man, twenty that's hard to buy. <laughs> if, if he's anywhere in his twenties, uh, yeah, he not really the case. Yeah, maybe like maybe a young twenties uh, plus fifteen. George Grizzard, by the way, as a side note, um, there was a really great PBS. Uh, historical drama miniseries in the 70s called The Adams Chronicles. And he got there before... Um, I'm spacing on the actor's name uh, who played John Adams in the HBO miniseries. George Grizzard played uh, John Adams in a PBS miniseries about John Adams when he was considerably older than this. Giamatti, are you thinking of Giamatti? Yeah, Giamatti. He, he played... And he, you know... John Adams was small and bald and a little portly. So George Grizzard, by the time he played Adams, was, you know, still tall, handsome, and had a full head of hair. So he was not ideally suited for the role. But it's a very good, if you track it down, it's actually a very good as a, as a historical drama. The Adams Chronicles. The Adams Chronicles. Ran on PBS. I don't know. I have no idea if it's available anywhere, but that's what I mostly remember him from. Oh, interesting. Cool. Uh, I, I went ahead and wrote that down. Uh, pro- probably, uh, I don't know. Maybe he's a better actor than Giamatti to pull it off. But yeah, yeah. He, he, again, he was good. This is—it's such a—he has such a thankless role in this episode, and he—he—he—he he, he, he does buy in completely. God bless him. He, you know, like a lot of the actors on the Twilight Zone, he's given something fairly obnoxious and difficult to play, and he runs with it. Yeah. <laughs> he really, you know, he. He gives it his all, which is very impressive. I think he probably came from the stage before this. Yeah, he he really does pull off the the lovelorn, uh, yeah, kind of kind of you know, like hopeless romantic, uh, right? And really obsessed a little bit uh, about Leela, of course. Oh, yeah, uh, who he he he's talking he talking to her on the phone, and she's basically trying to blow him off, like get out of here, guy. Right. Uh, he so he gets hung up on, and the, this old man. Uh, who who bought his way to the front is like okay it's my turn dude here's a business card get out of here this guy will help you out 
So mm-hmm. so he so he shoes shoes Roger out to a professor Professor Damon, who yes. who basically gives him a love potion. Right. Uh, so, and, you know, just a, and a side note about yeah. the character names, the name of uh, I mean, they're all beautifully ridiculous nail on the head character names. He's Professor A. Damon, like he yeah. even needs a indefinite article in front of his uh, <laughs> name. So the oh, he's not just any Damon. He's A. Damon. And Roger is Roger Shackleforth, who begins the story shackled to his love of this woman and then ends up shackled in another way. And even the, the, the title has a nice twist because, you know, Damon tells him, he sells him the love potion and says, but everyone comes back for the chaser, which is the glove cleaner, mm-hmm. which is of course poison. It's going to kill her. It's a very dark episode, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the title has a nice double meaning of the chaser is this, poison but also he is the chaser he is chasing her and then by the end of the episode she is the chaser chasing him so it's a you know a lot of a lot of what passes for clever writing Uh, you know it's 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 all very unsubtle but uh that's one of the strengths and weaknesses i think of the twilight zone is it went in for you know it went in for some pretty straightforward stuff sometimes yeah yeah sometimes more heavy-handed than others yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in you, you talk about the, the chasing, right. And this guy is clearly chasing after Leela the entire time, which is why he even thinks he needs to get a, a love potion. Right. Uh, and, and, and she, so he goes to her apartment and he somehow manages to get her to change up doll up out of her, uh, evening gown and get into mm-hmm. nicer clothes. Uh, just for one glass of champagne, which he spikes, of course, with this love potion. And I, I think it's interesting that she starts off like, get out of here, but then slowly changes up her, like, oh, you know, one kiss. Sure. Get back here. I was too hard on you. Well, give me another kiss. Sure. Uh, and, and there's a weird aspect of it, and I think I'll get into it later, where she's like, she knows something's wrong, but she is getting pulled into it still right because of the drug acting yeah. on yeah uh but uh yeah so then after, uh it's skips forward six months later now she's totally completely in love with him and he can't even be bothered to uh have her rub his feet right <laughs> uh so he goes he goes back to the professor a Damon, mm-hmm. and says hey i need i need that glove cleaner g-o-l g-l-o-v-e glove um and he bought the love potion for a dollar, which is right. cheap. What a what a bargain! Glove cleaner is a thousand dollars, which is how Damon makes sure. that money. Uh, but Damon leaves him with a with a note: if you mess up, if you don't poison this woman and, and kill her, you'll never get the urge or courage to do it again. Right. So the dude gets back to the apartment. Uh, he tries to poison his wife, and she shows his. Uh, daughter or son's little baby booty saying, Hey, I'm pregnant. He drops the, the champagne glasses. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh yeah. I, I, I couldn't have done it anyways. I couldn't have killed you anyways. Right. So this, this guy is stuck in this <laughs> obsessive right. relationship forever until one of them dies. Right. And you know, in the, in the sense that these are always supposed to be morality plays, you can read this one as 
if you take if you take the magic out of it, it's just a story about any dude who lies to a chick to get her into bed. Yeah. And ends up in a you know, like gets what he wants and then can't get out of it and is not really man enough to admit that he lied. Can't you know you know, it's it's about using any form of deception. And of course, you know, the Twilight Zone uh is a thing that I dealt with a little bit in the comic book. Yeah. Is it's always it's a vehicle to mete out cosmic justice sometimes in an abstract way. The only problem for me with this one is the cosmic justice is meted out to him in that he's going to be miserable, but the girl is still a slave for the rest of her life. (laughs) She's, you know, like she's being punished, I guess for being a jerk to him, but she has every good, the guys and the guys a clingy rapey douchebag. So he kind of deserves to be treated poorly. Completely. You know? So it's a little, you know, the sexual politics, I think you'd have a hard time remaking this today because people would say, hey, that still seems pretty harsh on her. Well, <laughs> you know, you know I, 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 I was talking to my wife because uh, I was watching it with her. And, and first I was like, this, this first half seems like a date rape advertisement. Yes. Um, and then, but... then the second part is, you know, when she's, I mentioned this earlier, like she's, she can feel herself losing control. Like she's <laughs> even like, what's happening to me? And uh, I don't know if you've watched Jessica Jones on Netflix. Um, oh yes, of course. Yeah, but, yeah, that did kind of cross my mind too. But where, yeah. where she she like she knows that she doesn't love this guy and she yeah. doesn't want to be there, but she's she's stuck. She's like like just watching her kind of like in third person watching like her body do yeah. this stuff. Right? Yeah, and it, and that's the thing is if you watch it with any sort of sympathy for her as a human being with her own agency, the thing is a nightmare and she is punished way out of proportion with any crime she's like this is a guy who's contemplating murdering her and the worst thing that happens to him is he gets to be married to a gorgeous woman who dotes on him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Ooh. That's that's his quote unquote nightmare is he gets what he wanted. <laughs> Her nightmare is she's enslaved to a mind control drug forever. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, and I, I think the director did his, not that I don't think these, con- these, uh, these considerations really didn't cross anyone's mind that much in the mid sixties, early sixties, but the director did his best to make her wildly unpleasant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, there, there's a way to direct the same dialogue where she's not just, incredibly cruel and dismissive to him. Right. Like she could have said all of the same things, but in a tone that wasn't as, and I think he was probably vaguely aware that, you know, we're pretty harsh. on. You know, the audience has to not be sitting there going, Ooh, this is, that's awful. I mean, there's something, there's something that I call the Nazi aesthetic, which shows up in a lot of horror movies, shows up in natural born killers a little bit. When you're trying to make a comedy or a horror movie and you're trying to soften the edge of it for the audience, you make all of the teenagers that, that Freddy or Jason are going to kill kind of awful. Yeah. And that always offends the crap out of me because I'm like, you know, in real life, serial killers kill you and me. You know, <laughs> they're not out there only preying on awful, awful people. Right. Right. You know, and to to turn them into some sort of weird ass, like this is how 
this is what the popular kids you went to high school with all deserve. It's like, no, they really don't. They really don't deserve to be murdered. <laughs> they, they don't deserve to be filleted or, or trapped in a, a slave relationship uh, with a rapist for the rest of their lives. Right. Like, that, that's, that's, that's a little harsh. That's kind of why I liked, uh, like Cabin in the Woods, for example. Like, oh, they, sure. You know, they, they, they took that and then they, they kind of humanized them a little. Like, they started with the tropes, but then they're like, yeah. okay, but there's, yeah. there's something more to them. No, you have to, you, you have now, now you have to examine the tropes. I mean, this is kind of a dark joke, but, you know, Goldfinger is probably my second favorite or maybe my favorite Bond movie. It's great. It's incredibly entertaining. If you take the last 20 minutes of it at face value, if you remade that movie today without changing it, the last 20 minutes asks the moral question, would you rape a lesbian if you thought it would save 60,000 people from a nerve gas attack? That's horrible. <laughs> I know that's not what they meant, and I know you're supposed to you're supposed to interpret that scene as no, she's secretly attracted to him. But from a darker point of view, the question is: Would you rape a lesbian to save sixty thousand people from a nerve gas attack and all of the Western economies from collapsing? It's the age old question. It's the age old question, and it is actually it's a fascinating moral question. You know, is one life shattering one person's psyche worth 60,000 lives. There are a lot of people walking around, particularly in those kind of jobs, who would say, oh, hell yes. <laughs> you know, right. Like, of course it is. But of course, that's not what the movie's about at all, and that's not a question that occurred to anyone while they were shooting it. It's just what occurs to you now in the 21st century watching it. Um, you know, and that, that happens a lot with things like this. Um, so yeah, everyone is everyone's kind of awful in this episode. They give, uh, you know, a Damon has sort of a nice world weariness to him and a certain wisdom. But when he says, you know, how do you think I came to invent the glove cleaner? Like, and this is a man who has murdered a mistress or two in his yeah, life. Clear, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly he is awful. Also kind of awful. And, uh, you know, and that's, I, you know, I dealt with that a little bit in the comic book, which we can get to later, but yeah. the whole idea of, if you're dispensing justice in a sort of brutal way, it kind of behooves you to pay very close attention to who you're dispensing justice to and how you're doing it. Right. right. You know, when you have that kind of ultimate power. And of course, in the case of the Twilight Zone, there's no sense of a, you know, for want of a better word, there's no God, there's no judge. It's not personal. It's all just kind of abstract. Right. Um, you know, and there are plenty of episodes that have no real justice to them at all. Like, you know, is, uh, is Shatner being punished for his superstition in Nick of Time, or is he being punished for being a schizophrenic in uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet? You know, right. like, he hasn't really done anything wrong there that requires that he be tested, but, but the Twilight Zone is testing him anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's like Burgess Meredith in Time Enough at Last. Like, I've always... <laughs> I've always had a difficult time with that one because yeah, because he's a perfectly nice guy. Yeah, when, so, what is he really being punished for? Other than yeah, so there's something about to, to, maybe he's being punished for not paying attention to his surroundings. So there's something about that one that occurred to me. Uh, oh, I don't know, about ten years ago, I was watching that again. It's like you know that ending is not ironic, not that ironic, and here's why: he's going to be dead from radiation poisoning and/or starvation in about three days. So yeah. it's not like he had a lot of time to read those. You know, like you know, we're pretty sure that's a nuclear war, yeah. and he's 
survived it, but he survived it in ground zero. So there's going to be a lot of strontium 90 and running through his veins and he's going to, his hair is going to start falling out in about 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know? they, they mentioned it in the Alanis Morissette song. It's like radiating on the atomic <laughs> bomb drop day. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, he doesn't really have all the time in the world to read. He'd maybe get through half a book <laughs> yeah. and if his glasses didn't break before he starts vomiting and blood comes out his eyes. Through the, pro- but, no, through the prologue, yeah. Like, yeah, oh, exactly. Oh. Don't pick up War and Peace, Burgess. It's not gonna <laughs> not gonna go well for you. Uh, or the stand. I know it didn't exist. The stand. Yeah, don't touch the stand. And the stand. The subject matter is gonna bring him down. All <laughs> considering his circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, man. Well, so I, I always ask my guests to uh, go ahead and rate the episode overall. What, what did you, out of, out of any rating scale you prefer, what would you uh, give this episode? Any rating scale I prefer. Yeah. I'm going to be boring and give it a give it a 5 out of a 10. Um, I would put it on the mediocre side for the episodes. It gets it gets anything at all because the, 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 the Damon dialogue is good. Like those scenes are well written. Um, mm-hmm. That crazy set with the books is great. Uh, and I'm a I'm a soundtrack nerd. The episode I had forgotten before I watched it again recently. That episode uh, features my favorite piece of library music they used on the series. It's something called Street Moods in Jazz. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's a it's just this weird catchy little tune they would throw in whenever it was supposed to be an urban setting. Yeah, uh, my my wife. <laughs> Uh, they use that on the in the fever too, mm-hmm. um, and my yeah. my wife does not like that. Yeah, that's I. Li- I think I bought the four CD Twilight Zone soundtrack set, and that was the thing I was most excited to. Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a little bit like the theme music, which is also a library track. Which I mean, not in the in the first season, it's Bernard Herrmann, and it's something that they mm-hmm. you know had written for the show. But uh, I, the famous Twilight Zone scene theme is actually just a needle drop. <laughs> from uh, uh you know a library that they bought which is interesting but anyway those those things to one side and you know and the acting is the acting is solid even if it's in the service of something goofy yeah <laughs> uh, i i would give it i would give it a, a six out of ten i think i the uh I, I read a little bit of the original short story by Coll- mm-hmm. by collier and it's, yeah. it's the original short story is actually just the two men in the library talking Sure. Uh, and and that and that's it. So they expanded it really for the the twenty five minute episode. And then they remade it without acknowledging it because that's what you do. Yeah, uh, exactly. As a uh, as a tells in the crypt episode with Andrew McCarthy right. and Marielle Hemingway, which I totally remember. The mannequin man himself. Yeah, I totally remember watching that when it first aired and going, oh, this is that Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> but, you know, more than half of the Tales of the Crypt episodes, you went, oh, this is that Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, I, I remember that episode as well. And I was like, I, I never actually put the two together until just recently. Like, oh, those two episodes are like the same damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, cool, man. Well, well, well thank you so much for that. Uh now, here's the thing. You came out with this really cool idea, the Twilight Zone, the Shadow. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, it was uh, CBS owns the license for Twilight Zone, and they've been trying. They've been 
having various comic books done by uh, Dynamite, who publishes my stuff. Um, and they wanted to do a crossover with The Shadow. The idea actually came from them. And my first response was, that's really hard because The Shadow is the same thing as The Twilight Zone in his own way. And at first I came to them with a pitch that was, okay, so maybe The Twilight, the, the Shadow is the narrator of The Twilight Zone. Uh, you know, like maybe it's the shadow as the Rod Serling figure who's bringing the justice. And they were like, no, 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 no. We want Twilight Zone type things happening to the shadow. Uh, and I even went, I tried again and went, okay, so Lamont Cranston. And they went, no, not his alter ego, the shadow. And I went, okay, that's, you know, we'll do that. Um, and the thing that helped crack it for me was when I came up with the meta element. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I when I got the job, I literally sat down and read my way through the Mark Zickery Twilight Zone Companion for the hundredth time, right. just to read all the synopses and all of Rod's narration and go, what's the, what are the tropes? What are the things we keep coming back to? And one of them is that your life is a fiction, is a thing that comes up a lot. Yes. And one of them is the power to create the world with your will as a writer or whatever. You haven't read issue three yet uh, in which the shadow finds himself in the persona of the guy writing the first shadow novel and sort of has to, has to be his own creator. And in the second issue, which you did read, he's essentially in the body of, we can't say Orson Welles for legal reasons, but it's Orson Welles uh, <laughs> doing, a, doing a radio show. Porson, uh, Porson Bells. Yeah, the, the the artist actually came up with Preston Springs, which I really liked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I called Agnes Moorhead Madge Minifer, which is a couple of character names from Orson Welles movies that Agnes Moorhead played. Because Agnes did the voice of Margot Lane in 37. Um, gotcha. And uh, so I took the shadow through a Twilight Zone experience where he keeps seeing himself through the eyes of the alter ego who he pushes around all the time. Um, it's through the eyes of the actor who plays him on the radio through the eyes of the writer who created him. And finally, uh, he wakes up back in his own body in the fourth issue. Um, and has to sort of apply what he learned in the twilight zone about mercy, about just that there is no justice without mercy is sort of the, you know, I like playing around with the, with the catchphrase and with the, you know, the, the fame, the famous catchphrase who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Right, right. And when I was developing this again, what I thought was, well, you know, he knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Does he know what, who knows what lurks in the heart of the shadow? Right. That was sort of the way to the direction to go with it. So, uh, so yeah, it was that they accepted that pitch. <laughs> uh, and in the best possible way it unfolded, I had it plotted out. A little bit, yeah. but things still surprised me, and I did a lot of research. I mean, it's the nature of the... I, I know a lot of people don't research things as fully as, as I sometimes do, but I mean, there's, in the third issue, the Zinka Indians, who are the people who supposedly taught the, the Shadow some of his magic tricks, appear in maybe four panels of the comic, and I... I can say I spent a solid month trying to track down information about the Zinka Indians. They're very obscure, apparently. 
uh, and ended up going to Facebook and finding out that an acquaintance of mine in Paris is a specialist on pre-Columbian civilizations, and she was able to tell me all about this in Kenya. Networking. But, yeah, but yeah, exactly. You get a lot of stuff that way. Um, and also I thought that since Twilight Zone fans would be reading it, I think you saw this a little bit in the second issue, I feather in the Shadows' origin story all through the four issues for the people who are coming in late and go, so it's Batman with guns? Is that way? You, you know, he's like that, but yeah. he has kind of magic about him. So, uh so yeah, that's that's sort of how it unfolded, and I can honestly say that um, as a big fan of the series, I you know you can't use Rod Serling. That's that's part of the part of the deal. Right. But I felt it was what I would want as a Twilight Zone fan is every episode, every issue opens and closes with uh, a Rod Serling like introduction and conclusion right um written as much in his style as i could possibly do i tried to stay away you know i i controlled myself and didn't do submitted for your approvals or portrait of a or you know i stayed out of those but i have you know in the i think the third issue i have a breakfast metaphor that i wouldn't have written in a million years (laughs) it's like you know the shadow has lived an uncanny life you know the macabre is his toast the you know the uncanny is his coffee something like that you know like i wouldn't have written that but it felt like something rod serling would have written in 1959 (laughs) so you know i i I imagine that that writing in that style and i think you do a a a very good job of of writing in that that style i i think it I feel like it would be difficult to have the right amount of of uh, homage where you don't you're, where you're bordering on homage and imitation, but you know still have your own voice with it, right? Like, yeah, it's a it doing any kind of impression like that is tricky. But I have to say, Rod Serling was such a huge influence on me when I was a kid. Uh, not that I write like him in any real way, but um, it's his voice is so distinct. Uh, and I have such affection for it that I can't say that it was a real strain or hard at all to to walk that line. Because okay. um, like I said, it's easy to do. Uh, you know where I did walk that line intentionally is I also write the solic- what are called the solicits. It's the thing that goes in uh, it's a magazine called Preview that is read by fans, but it's mostly read by comic shop owners and retailers. And it basically tells you this is what's in the next issue. And in those, I went way over the top with submitted for your approvals and, (laughs) you know, like picture, picture if you will, you know, I did a lot of that because I think I like those to be funny, but in the context of the book, it's not like Rod said submitted for your approval. It's, you know, that probably shows up twice in five years of Twilight Zone episodes. I've never tracked it. Not actually very often, no. But yeah, it's not a thing he used all the time, so there's no need for it. I think that's a, that's a great handle if you're doing a vocal impression or if you want to make it a joke. Or, but to or not, a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, to, but to not make it a joke in the, in the course of telling a story that you want people to take at its own terms, yeah. it was easy enough to just find his, you know, how would Rod Serling approach this material? What would he say about this? And it pushed me in directions. There's a, I think the outro to issue three is, I wrote something very, uh, 
trying to think of the best adjective. Very humanist and very, you know, uh, heartwarming is the wrong word, but something, something cynical but positive, which is really Rod's whole thing, is that, it, you know, it, the stories are all deeply cynical, and he himself is cynical, but cynics are just heartbroken romantics. And the, when you're summing up the story... Uh, you know, and especially in issue three, he's talking about, you know, the quality of mercy, which is, as the man says, not strained on earth or in the twilight zone. That's very, I don't know that I would say that, but again, that's, you know, that seems to come from the heart of the twilight zone type of material. And I can honestly say in the fourth, the fourth issue, the shadow encounters uh, a, a 17 year old kid who's an American Nazi. And, deals with how the kid ended up that way and maybe could he ever be changed could you can you can you make someone who's bought that kind of ideology see the light in any way and uh when i got to that stuff i went wow this is very rod serling territory and i hadn't planned to go there i just by the time i got to the fourth issue it's like no if he's learned the lesson about mercy yeah he actually has to see a nazi not as a faceless inhuman monster but mercy requires that the objects of your justice, as righteous as you may be, are also human beings, and you have to judge them individually as human beings. And in the first issue, he fires—it's never indiscriminately because he's the shadow and he ever, always hits what he's firing at. Right. But he fires into a crowd of people, and yes, his bullets find the people that are shooting back at him. Where there are women and children. But there are women and children. There's yeah. a woman— you know, holding a baby who has a, a guard's brain splattered right next to her. And, uh, you know, even as precise as you are, um, gun battles are not a place to expect everything to go exactly the way you planned it. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's the, the whole point of the shadow is that he's a guy that doesn't learn lessons and is the teacher of lessons. And it was uh, once I figured out what lesson could you teach him? Um, that was the wellspring of the whole story. Yeah, I, I really like uh, you when you mentioned earlier. You know his his catchphrase and yeah, and and really the the four issues is all about what is is his evil, right? Like what yeah, what lurks in in his heart and and uh, I I think I think that's a really cool way to in how you incorporated the meta aspects of it um, mm-hmm. to to both you know, uh, do a tribute to Twilight Zone, get that feel, get that, that kind of definitive voice, um, that, that Rod had right of, uh, uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I've, I haven't gotten to issue four, obviously, uh, <laughs> but you know, like get to where the shadow is learning something from mm-hmm. it, from the, yeah. from the entire experience. Cause I, I imagine, you know, that the, uh, the Nazi kind of, uh, the American Nazi, get together at the beginning of issue one, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I imagine yeah, it wraps around back. back to that. Yeah, we end, we, end, we end up back there. And, you know, there's something that happens. You'll let you read it yourself. But in the fourth issue, after he has supposedly absorbed the lesson, there is an ambiguous moment that as a writer, you know, this is such a pretentious writer cliche, but I had intended the shadow to leave a certain, a certain situation without killing anybody else. And 
he said, stop the car, picked up a machine gun and killed a bunch of guys. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. I was like, he won't let me let him drive away from this situation uh, because that's just not that violates the character too much. Right. <laughs> uh, so the so the thing ends on a maybe a more ambiguous note than uh, Serling might have done. But the difference is I had 80 pages to tell the stories, which is a little more than 22 minutes. Right. I mean, um, I mean, so long as is the shadow, he comes out of it at, through the end with with a bit more perspective than than he yeah. enters. And he definitely does, and that's definitely there. Excellent. Um, but I couldn't make it. So, you know, you you can't take that character and make him. You know, I'm not going to shoot people anymore. It's like no, <laughs> that's you know, he's not going to stop shooting bad guys. That's not a thing that's going to happen. Then he moves to Gotham, basically. Yeah. Exactly. We're not going to have him put on bad ears and get a butler. You know, that's not, that's not, he's not that guy. He's, you know, and his, his thing is always that he's channeling. A, there are a lot of origin stories out there for the shadow. It's been rewritten a lot. And it's actually, it's something I think modern readers would not recognize. If you go back and read the pulp novels, they don't give you an origin for the shadow for a hundred of those books. They, he is a mystery. He is a mystery to his, his agents, the people that work for him. He's a mystery to everyone. And they slowly dole out the origin story. And because of that, uh, it's allowed a lot of writers to do different variations on it. And mine is not particularly anyone's, but my own reading of what I got out of the pulp novels. Um, and I'm definitely not the first writer to go, well, the shadow is channeling his own violence and his own violent urges into fighting crime. That's the lesson he learned. I made it specifically about world, you know, a guy who was a fighter pilot in world war one, which comes from the, the novels. But, uh, I said, you know, you spend a lot, that much time killing people and kind of enjoying it. You know, you're, you're stuck with to what do you turn that, uh, you know, he's not Batman or Superman. He's not getting over the death of his parents. We don't ever know a thing about the Shadow's parents uh, or his upbringing. We just know that he had this wartime experience, and when the war was over, he didn't stop. Right. You know. Um, is is there is there a little bit of uh, um, when when you're writing it a little bit of like a considered like a PTD, PTSD aspect to him? Yeah, I think he has, I think he has a little of that. I mean, you know, this is something I've said many times that really all genre literature, all heroic literature, if you break it down, is about war veterans with PTSD. Yeah. Going back to the Odyssey, <laughs> the Odyssey is about a guy trying to come home from the Trojan War, <laughs> which has changed him as a person. Yeah. Uh, Aeschylus's Agamemnon is a PTSD story to a large extent. Westerns tend to be about damaged Civil War veterans. Even if it's never referred to, there's always a blue coat or a gray coat or a hat on somebody to give you an indicator of how they turned cold and violent. Um, gangster movies about the Roaring Twenties or about World War I veterans, which is where we are here. Film noir in the 50s is World War II and Korean War veterans. The 70s, your villain was always a damaged Vietnam War veteran. Yeah. You know, it's just, and that guy that shot five cops in Dallas is, you know, not so recently returned from Iraq or Afghanistan. I can't remember which one. Hmm. So, you know, it's, we, it's not like it's news that war warps people, that you, you know, you train people to kill and then they, 
have to find something to do with that feeling later. Um, so it seemed perfectly natural to focus on that aspect of the shadow. Right. Right. You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, you exactly. I mean, Rod himself was, yeah. was, was part of that for, for a lot of it. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there, you know, there's a lot of ex servicemen in his work and there's a lot of war trauma in his work. Yeah. You know? All right, man. Well, um, how how can we how can we get a hold of you? How can people uh, check out check out your books? Check out your other work. Uh, well, you can uh, you can find the the comics. Every comic I've ever written is available either on Amazon or on Comicsology, which is another variation of Amazon. Um, <laughs> and you can get them in paper or as ones and zeros. Like I said, the whole uh, Shadow Twilight Zone story will be collected in October, it looks like. Um, but you can get the individual issues now, and the fourth one comes out in a week and a half. Yes. Um, and I can be found on Twitter, at D Avalone. Um, and, you know, it's it, the good thing is it's the 21st century. Google me, and you will find out everything that I'm doing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's easy that way. Absolutely. And you, you, you just produced and edited a, a film, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the, or is that the, a while? the last thing that I edited, I can't remember if they gave me a producing credit. I did a movie called with one tied hand that hasn't been released yet, uh, which is a documentary about the, uh, experience of African-American soldiers in Italy in world war two, which talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, a few years ago, I produced a comedy called such good people, which is on, uh, it's on the Netflix. It's on all the, and that's just a goofy farce comedy. Cool. It's not. Uh, I didn't. I didn't write it. I take no responsibility <laughs> for that. But it's very funny. It's very cute and sweet. Yeah. That, there's no. There's no Rod Serling narration. There's no Rod Serling narration. It's not something. Uh, it's not something I would have woken up and written. But it's. It's very <laughs> funny and it's very sweet. Um, and it has many many fine actors in it. All right. Right on. Right on. Well, hey, thank you so much, David, for uh, for coming on the My show uh, and and talking to us about uh, the, the shadow specifically. I mean, I uh, I'm sure you've heard of this a lot in the last couple months. I haven't. I don't know that much about the shadow, but the great thing about this book is it's like the after the first issue, I was like, wait, where am I? Okay, let me <laughs> let me figure it out. And then I read more about it, and like, oh, this is this is actually pretty cool. It's a very very wide and deep history for the shadow. So uh, good on you for, for bringing that back to the, the thank you. Thank you. Um, and so I will, I'll have links to all your stuff out there. Mr. Oh, and in the meantime, for all the rest of the listeners, uh, if you want to get a hold of me, there's a few ways you can do that. I am on Twitter, of course, at S four Y a underscore podcast. Uh, Instagram, S4YA underscore podcast. Then I am on Gmail, S4YA podcast at gmail.com. I'm on iTunes, Stitcher. Head out, five stars, four stars, one star, preferably the higher scale, and leave a review. And uh, just hit me up anytime. If you have any more questions for David, you can always hit him up on the, the Twitter Absolutely. as well. And uh, until, until next week, I am Brandon. Thanks again, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And this is submitted for your approval.